We are continuing our series in the letter of 1 John. So we are in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 1 John 2, verses 12 through 17. A couple of weeks ago, there was an event that uh, millions of people were interested in. Perhaps you were as well. It was a football game. We called it the Super Bowl. And so millions of people watched that, some of whom actually cared nothing about the game. Many people watch that game, though they do not watch football on a regular basis because there are other things that surround that game that people are interested in. Now, I was in life group, and so I had started the game late. I had it recorded, and so I was watching the first half, and I was fast-forwarding through all of that other junk, and I was just watching the game. Sadly, however, I did that too quickly and caught up to live television right at halftime. And I cared nothing about the halftime show, not because I'm more moral than you are, because I know there were all kinds of questions and debates about what went on at halftime. That had nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I simply don't like that kind of music and didn't understand what they were saying anyway, and so I muted it. I didn't want to listen to it. But you know what I did during halftime while it was muted on the TV? I got my iPad out and did the other thing that is so important in that game. I looked up the commercials. I did a search for which commercials were the best in the first half of the Super Bowl. And so I I watched the ones that had already been voted as the best. Did you know that they spend $5.6 million for a 30-second television advertisement during the Super Bowl? $5.6 million for 30 seconds. Now, frankly, I don't understand that. I don't know how a company can do that, but we know they do. And the numbers keep rising every year. And the only explanation must be that it's worth it. In other words, that they sell enough of their products, they get it into our minds that we need what they're offering, and they do it so well that they must make more than the $5.6 million they've spent for that 30-second spot. Otherwise, it's not worth their time. The fact of the matter is, marketing and advertising is very powerful. Whether you're a Christian or not, we are affected by the marketing and advertising that goes on around us, whereby companies are intent on trying to convince us that we basically cannot live without the product that they're advertising, that we must have what they are offering, that our life is not as happy as it ought to be unless we get their product. And only then will we be satisfied. Only then will we be happy. Only then will we be like everybody else and have all of the things that this life offers so that we can be content with what the world provides. And you say, what does that have to do with the book of 1 John? Well, John is talking about our, our love. And he's talking about our love for the world and how we ought not to love like the world loves. Now, you recall that John is dealing with a situation here where there have been some people who have left the church or the group of churches. And these people have left because theologically there was a disagreement, but they are not content merely with leaving. They are basically sending home missionaries back to those places they have left, trying to encourage the ones who have stayed to agree with them and leave as well. And what John is trying to get across to the people who have remained, that's obviously who he's writing to. 
he is letting them know that things are not always as they appear. In other words, he is, he is setting forth a series of tests, a series of statements, and his main goal is to show that just because someone professes faith in Christ does not mean they actually have it. And in this case, he's talking about those who have left, while at the same time, he's trying to bring reassurance and encouragement to those who have remained behind. And so he's talked about things like, well, like we talked about last week. You say that you know God, and yet you hate your brothers and sisters in Christ? Those two things don't go together, because those who know and love God will also love fellow believers, We've talked about walking in light versus darkness. Again, John says, you, you say that you know God, and yet you're walking in darkness. That is, you are living a life that is in contrary to, to everything you're saying you believe. And so he's saying these things ought not to be the case. You say that you know God, and yet you are not obeying his commandments. And in the text before us today, he says, you say that you know God, and yet you are loving the world even as the unbeliever does. There is an old country song that says, folks tend to look for love in all the wrong places. Well, that's what a lot of people are doing. And I don't mean in, in the sense of our romantic relationships. I'm talking about in the sense that love is only as good as its object. We have this belief sometimes that love is inherently good. That as long as you love someone, that's wonderful. And because of that, all kinds of sins are excused. But John does not say love is inherently good. In fact, John says it is possible to love the wrong things. And if you love the wrong things, then your love is not good. It is actually destructive. And so his main command here is do not love the world. Now, last week we talked about love. But last week it was brotherly and sisterly love within the body of Christ. And we set about trying to improve our love life. Again, not romantic, but our love life in the sense of loving one another in the body of Christ. Today we're asking a more fundamental question. And that is, what or who is the object of our love? We're asking the question, who do you love? And the answer to that is going to dictate whether or not your love is the biblical love he is talking about here, or whether it is the kind of love he is condemning. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Now look again real quickly at verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that is our key statement today. Who do you love? Do you love the world? And we're going to explain what that means because you're going to be quick to say, no, no, I don't love the world. I love the Father. And that would be the answer that most of us would raise our hands and say, absolutely, if you give me a choice between loving God and loving the world, I'm going to say I love God. And I know that's what you're going to say. But what we're going to do is look at some other things to determine, or at least try to, what it is we really do. So we're going to start this morning by reaffirming your position. That is, John sets out by talking about these individuals within the church trying to assure them. Again, we talk so often about how John's letter is meant to separate those who are genuinely saved and those who are not. But an underlying reason he writes all of this is for the assurance of those who are genuinely saved. He is not trying to cast doubt on their salvation. He is not trying to discourage them, and neither am I. And so in these verses, he's trying to set out that they genuinely are believers in Jesus Christ, that is, those whom he is writing to, and therefore he is seeking to reassure them. He has given us all kinds of tests tests of true salvation, of obedience, of love for brothers and sisters, of walking with Christ, and such soul-searching topics is bound to leave some to whom he is writing wondering, well, maybe I'm not a real believer after all. I mean, I do fail in that sometimes. I don't love my brothers as much as I ought to. I don't walk with Christ as faithfully as I should. Maybe I'm one of the ones that are not a true believer. And so John is setting forth here uh, not doubts and confusion, but he's striving to reaffirm their position with Christ. And so he does this by writing to three different groups. There is a little debate there. Some say, no, there's only two groups. Little children is the phrase that he uses for all believers. And then there's two categories underneath that. But I'm going to go with the, the majority view that these are three groups here. And he writes to all three groups and states to them uh, something twice. Sometimes it's repetitive, but there, there's two statements to each of the three groups. And so you see in verse 12, I am writing. Verse 13, I am writing. Verse 13 again, I am writing. Those are the three groups. But then in the second half of verse 13, I write, verse 14, I write, I write. That's actually, it's been the present tense the first three times. It's in the past tense the next three times. But the reason it's translated as I read it here is because that's just a stylistic thing. So John's writing in the present tense. He just changes it up in the second category there. Now, now who's he writing to? That's what we care about. He is writing, first of all, to wise or new believers, I should say. I said that backwards. This is one of the problems with putting it up on the screen. I can't hide my mistakes. And so I have to admit them. It's new believers. That's the first category. That is the little children to whom he is writing here. Because he's not talking about ages. He's not talking about young people when he talks about children and older people when he talks about fathers. He's talking about the spiritual maturity or lack thereof of the various people within the body of Christ. And so he starts with new believers. And obviously this would be the group that would most need reassurance. They, they would be the ones who need to reaffirm their position in Christ the most because they are new to the faith and yet they are witnessing a division in the faith and they don't quite know how to handle it. Should they go with those who have left the church? Maybe they're right. Or should they remain behind? Or should they get involved in this at all? 
And so they're going to be the ones that are most susceptible to struggling in their faith because of this whole situation. And so he tells them two things. He's writing to new believers, and he says two things about these new believers. He reminds them that they know forgiveness. Now, this is a very fundamental thing in our relationship with Christ. Most of us know, if you're a believer, that in order to become a believer, you have to come to the place in your life where you acknowledge that you are a sinner. All of us are, but not all of us acknowledge that. But in order to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you have to acknowledge that you are a sinner, that because you are a sinner, you are separated from God, and because of those two things, there's nothing you can do to remedy that problem. You cannot work your way into a relationship with God. You cannot somehow atone for yourself, for your sins, and so you have a very serious issue, and this is what Christians come to to wrestle with, that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God. I need forgiveness, but I can't do it on my own, but there is one who has done it for me. And that is God in Christ has gone to the cross, died, and rose again so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins. And this forgiveness, verse 12, is not based on what we've done. Look at verse 12. It is based on his name, for his name's sake. And so he's speaking to new believers and says, hey, no matter what else you you, you struggle with, don't forget, you are forgiven. And some of us need to hear that message, don't we? Some of you who are struggling with sin, some of you who are struggling with temptation, some of you who have failed yet again and you're beginning to wonder, can God forgive me again? And the answer is yes. You are forgiven. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. He's already said that in chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So to the new believers, he says, you are forgiven. And secondly, he says, you are forgiven because you know the Father. You know God. Again, this is a fundamental thing. In fact, it's so fundamental that we misunderstand it. I was listening to the radio this past week. don't remember what I was listening to. In all likelihood, it was some country station. But I was listening to the radio, and a political ad came on. So here it is, two weeks in a row, I'm bringing up politics. A political ad came on to which I was paying very little attention. I don't even remember whose ad it was. I do know that it was a uh, Democratic candidate for president. But the reason I remember the ad is because something he said in the ad caught my attention. And what he said is this, we need to get back to where we understand that everybody is a child of God. And I said, no, that's not right. Everybody is a creature of God. Everybody is a creation by God, but everybody is not a child of God. According to the Bible, only those who know God are his children. And that is what John is reaffirming here. He says, you need to understand, you new believers that you know forgiveness, that is God in Christ has forgiven you of your sins, and the reason is because you know the Father through Jesus Christ. So he is reaffirming their position in the midst of potential doubts and even maybe some discouragement, knowing that they cannot fulfill what he's about to ask them or command them to do unless they are anchored in these fundamental truths of knowing that we are forgiven by God because we know the Father. The second group to which he writes is wise believers. These are the ones he calls fathers, different use of the word, 
We've been talking about God the Father, but now he's talking about spiritually mature uh, believers, not fathers in the physical sense, but spiritually mature believers. And to them he says also that they know God, but he adds another element to it. Verse 13, you have known him who has been from the beginning. That is, it is not just that they know God, though they do. Now they know the eternal God. And they know the eternal God because they've been walking with him for a number of years. And they have found God to be faithful. That is, you don't just know God. You don't just know the Father. Now you know his faithfulness because he has proven that to you time and time again as you've walked through life with him. So John wants to reassure them, not just of their forgiveness, not just that they know the Father, but he is reassuring them of their faithfulness, of God's faithfulness. If you're in a life group, you know that last week, one of the two chapters we looked at was a chapter on the unchanging nature of God. That you and I change, whether we like change or not, the fact of the matter is we change. There's nothing we can do about it. Change is a constant in our lives. There is one who does not change, and that is God. He is the only one who does not change. The Bible says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is an assurance to us. That is a comfort that the God we see in the Old Testament and how God interacts with his children in the Old Testament is the same God that interacts with us. The God that interacted with us 20 years ago is the same God that interacts with us today. So because God is faithful, we can trust in his promises. We can know that his word is going to come true. We do not have to worry about what he says. We know he is faithful, and these wise believers are being reminded of that. Then there is a third group. Not only the new believers, not only the wise believers, but the strong believers. That is the, the young men he writes to, uh, sort of in between these two categories. They are not new. They've been walking with the Lord for some time. They are not yet mature or wise. They are somewhere in the middle, and yet they are strong in their belief and strong in their walk with the Lord. While they may not be as wise as the uh, fatherly believers, they have the fortitude to withstand the attacks of the enemy and help guard others as well. They are strong in part from experience. Twice, John says, they have overcome the evil one. And that refers to the devil. They know how to face temptation and they have experienced victory over that temptation. So they are not strong because they have hidden from adversity. They are not strong because they have not gone through some things. You ladies yesterday gathered for a wow event, and you talked about the hills and valleys of life, though a lot of what you focused on was the valleys. Like, what does God teach us in the valleys of life, the adversities? And so you learned from some of the ladies and from talking to one another how God had, had taught you various things through difficulties in life. So these young men, these Strong believers are not strong because they haven't had to deal with anything. They are strong because they have had to deal with various things. But it is not just, of course, a matter of experience. In fact, difficult experiences don't necessarily lead to strong belief. It can actually do the opposite. Difficult experiences can lead us away from God. Difficult experiences can make us doubt God and question God. Is God good? Does God love me? And difficult experiences or adversity can actually lead us away from God. 
We hope that does not happen to you because if you understand correctly what the Bible says, you will know that he promises difficult circumstances and he uses those difficult circumstances for our good and for our growth. So these men that John is talking to have gone through difficult times, but not just the experiences that we're talking about here. Their strength lies in the fact that the word of God abides in them. They are focused on the will of God, and they are focused on the word of God, and that is the reason they are able to overcome the evil one rather than succumbing to the love of the world. I've said it over and over again. It is simple, and yet it is not simplistic. And that is, if you and I are going to be strong believers, the Word of God must abide within us. We must maintain our relationship with God through a connection with His Word. And I say that simple because it is very foundational, but I say it's not simplistic because there are so many people who miss this connection. That is, they are sailing along in life thinking that everything is great. They're too busy to spend time with God, too busy to be here this morning. And yet then something comes up in their life and they wonder why they can't overcome temptation, why they can't get past this sin that they keep committing over and over again, or why they don't have the strength or the faith that someone else has. And they never seem to make the connection that it's because the word of God does not abide in them. And we cannot do this apart from the word of God. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer that it gives us is by living according to your word. And we cannot live according to the word of God unless, of course, we know the word of God. So these strong believers, they've got what the new believers have as well. They are enjoying the forgiveness of sin. They are enjoying the fellowship of knowing the Father. But they go beyond that and they are prepared to fight the enemy because they are abiding in the word of God. And so the first thing we're doing this morning is simply trying to reaffirm your position. Where do you stand? Now, the truth is there ought to be a little bit of all three of these in you. If you're a believer of any length of time, there ought to be a little bit of all of this. And what I mean by that is this. We ought to never grow beyond the amazement that a new believer has that their sins have been forgiven. No matter how many years you've been a believer, there ought to be something in you that says, I cannot believe God would forgive me, but he does. And we continue to marvel at the fact that God forgives us and allows us to become one of his children that know him. So there ought to be that that sense of amazement in all of us. There ought to be, again, if if you've been with the Lord for a number of years, there ought to be a sense in which all of us have some wisdom about us. We've grown in our maturity, maybe not to somebody else's level, but we're growing. And in fact, the Bible makes very clear that if we do not have the wisdom of God, we merely need to ask for it. James makes that clear. But then, of course, there ought to be some of the strong believer in all of us in that by experience and by the abiding of the word of God within us, we have seen some victories in our life. We have been able to overcome some temptation, not all, but some. And therefore, we've had the experience of knowing what it is to stand against the evil one and come out victorious. So that's the first thing, reaffirming your position. And that leads to the second thing, and that is to recognize your plight. That is, we need to see the battle that we are in here in for. Now you say, what connection is there between verses 12 through 14 and verses 15 through 17? If you have a study Bible of some sort, there might be a new heading, probably is a new heading, at the top of verse 15. 
And so you say, well, it seems to be disconnected. Verse 15 is starting something new. No, it's connected. That's why I've put them together in this sermon. Verses 12 through 14, as we've said, is an encouragement. He is trying to reaffirm for them that they are right in their relationship with the Lord. But he's doing that for a reason. And the reason he's giving them encouragement is because he's about to give them an exhortation and the encouragement must come before the exhortation. The encouragement is the basis for the exhortation. That is, you have a relationship with God now, do not love the world. So these two things do go together, and oftentimes in the Bible that is the the formula. That is, we are reminded of who we are in Christ before we are given the command of what to do because we cannot do what we're commanded unless we're based in who we are in Christ. And so that is what John is doing here. So what is our plight? Well, our plight is we are surrounded by temptation. I don't have to tell you that. I don't have to tell you that the world then and now, sometimes we get the mistaken idea that nobody's ever had it as bad as we have it. Nobody's ever had the temptations that we've had. But there's always been temptations. They might come in different forms, but they've always been there. And so we live in a world that is filled with temptation. We live in a world that constantly bombards us with notions that are contrary to the Word of God. That's one of the reasons we do what we do every Sunday. It is commanded, but one of the reasons we gather on Sunday is to remind us of who we are in Christ and how we are to live in Christ because everything else we face outside of here is not going to be encouraging that. Everything else is going to be, in many ways, the opposite of that. And so this one day a week, we gather with fellow believers to remind ourselves that there is more to what's going on in this world and the world to come than what we just see on a daily basis. So our plight is we are living in the world, and yet the Bible makes it very clear that we are not to be a part of the world. It'd be a whole lot easier if God just took us out of the world the moment we are saved. But Jesus himself says that's not what we're doing. Jesus said, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them in the world. And so there's always been confusion here. Years ago, we thought, well, the thing to do if you're really serious about a relationship with the Lord is you become a monk. You go to a monastery. That's the only way to get rid of temptation and really live for the Lord. But that didn't work either because sin is in the heart. It's, 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 it's within us. And therefore, the struggle was still there. So that's, that's our plight is we are in the world, and yet we are told not to live like the world. So what does that mean? Well, we start by defining the world. What does he mean here by the word world? After all, it seems like a contradiction. You know the most famous book in the Bible. No, not Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, though I do think that's more popular these days. John 3, 16. For God so loved what? The world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we say John, who wrote John's gospel as well, Now John is saying, you know, do not love the world. God in Christ loved the world and died for it. And yet here we're being told, do not love the world. So how do we reconcile these things? Well, it depends on how you define the world. There are three ways the Bible uses this word. Number one is the created universe. That is the world that God created. Everything you see in creation is the world. And that, of course, is not the way it's used here, but we ought to understand that God created the world, gave it to us as a good gift to be enjoyed. Environmentalism is not a liberal notion. It's a biblical one. 
We ought to make sure that we're doing the best we can to safeguard the world that God has created because it's a good world for our gift. But that's not the way it's used here. Secondly, the word is used to talk about the people in the world. That's the way the word is used in John 3, 16. When God says he loved the world and sent Jesus to die for the world, he's talking not about the created universe, but he's talking about people, all of the people in the world. And again, that's not the way it's used here. So what's the third way it's used in the Bible, which is the way it's used here? It's not the created universe. It's not the people of the world. It is the evil, organized world system. The Bible tells us that the current world is under the dominion of the devil, and therefore the world's values and pleasures and desires and aspirations and pastimes all reflect this fact. And as a result, Christians are not to love the same thing that the world loves. We are to have different dreams. We are to have different goals, different aspirations and values and and even pleasures. Now, understand that does not mean that everything in the world is necessarily evil. This is not a call to forsake all culture. We've already talked about the fact that that was tried years ago, and it simply doesn't work. This world is created by God, and it is for our good. The problem is a lot of it has been distorted and changed from its original design so that what God intended for good has now in many ways become an idol, and therefore these things must be avoided. So having defined the world, John moves on to describing the world. And he does so in verse 16 by the use of three statements. He says, number one, the desires of the flesh, or the lusts of the flesh, your translation might say. Now, to be sure, this is a general statement. But most of us, when we see that kind of phrase, the desires of the flesh, or the lusts of the flesh, probably think of the sexual realm. I don't think necessarily that John means that. I think he's talking about much broader things. But that's probably where our mind goes to. And we understand, again, I don't have to explain this to you, that we live in a culture that magnifies this well beyond what God intended and well beyond the boundaries for which God intended. Now, last week I introduced you to a book by David Platt entitled Something Needs to Change, a a rehashing of a trip that he took with some other men in the Himalayan mountains. Uh, And it's not just a a hiking book. It's not that at all. It's about who he met along the way and the questions that that made him uh, ponder as it comes to how we help people in the world. I bring it up again. I have finished the book now. I bring it up again to to talk about this issue. And that is there are all kinds of of sexual issues that flow from what John talks about here, uh, the, the lust or the desires of the flesh. As they were about to enter one of the villages, um, the guy that was leading the trip who, who knew these mountains and, and lives in those, he doesn't live there, but he ministers there on a regular basis. He stopped the guys before they got into this village and he said to them, I want you to notice, when we get in the village, I want you to notice one thing. I want you to look for this and I want you to notice it. And what I want you to notice is, is this, that there are probably not going to be very many, if any, girls from the ages of 12 to 16. You're not gonna find them in this village. That age demographic is not going to be here. And the reason is because the vast majority of them have been taken out of this village and down into the city as part of the sex trafficking industry. And because they they went into the village and they saw that to be the fact, that that age range was not there. And because they learned more about it on the journey, when they got back to the city after they had finished their trek, 
they began to notice restaurants on virtually every corner that weren't really restaurants at all. They were fronts for sex trafficking. So this is a real issue in our day, in our world, in many different means. That's just one example. But the lust or the desires of the flesh, John says, is the way that we describe the world. This is going on all around us. Secondly, he says, the same word, the desires of your eyes. Again, the desire is not the problem. Desire is a neutral word. It is the object of your desire that makes it good or evil. And the desire here he's talking about is sinful actions that begin with the eyes. We see something that we want. We see something we desire that someone else has. We desire it so much that we covet it. The Bible says, thou shalt not covet. And yet we do it anyway. We want what someone else has. David could certainly testify of this. Having seen Bathsheba, he wanted her, and on and on it goes after that, going to all lengths to get what someone wants, causing all sorts of other sins and consequences. Jesus said, to use another example, you know, the Bible commands us that we should not commit adultery. And Jesus says, I tell you, anybody who looks at another woman with lust in his heart or his eyes has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, granted, our world makes this very hard to overcome, but that is no justification for disobedience. The world entices our eyes. That's what marketing is all about. That's what advertising is all about. But we must resist. We must make sure that our desires are not the same as the world. The third statement, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and in pride in possession. Pride is an underlying element in so many of the sins that we commit. We may not often identify that as the leading cause, but it's just below the surface whether we realize it or not. Pride in ourselves, pride in our accomplishments has no place in the kingdom of God. It certainly belongs to and is admired by the world, but we are not to be of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and because of that, we need to distance ourselves from the way the world thinks and the way the world desires and what the world values. Jesus said uh, he was praying for us in the midst of the world that we might overcome it. So we've defined the world, that is, we've looked at the way the word is used. We've described the world with these three statements that John uses, and then he talks about the destiny of the world. We don't really need a reason to obey God, but God gives us one. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. The destiny of the world is such that everything in it, along with the desires that we've just talked about, are all temporary. They are all passing away, which means it is not logical to live for these things. Why would we live for the things of the world knowing we've been told that all of these things are temporary? You probably know the story of the man who, who builds all of these things, has all of these possessions, clearly has his pride in his possessions, and yet Jesus says that famous statement, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? So what if you get every desire? So what if you possess every possession you've ever imagined? If you do it at the expense of your soul, it is simply not logical because all of these things are passing away. 
And so we've talked about recognizing our plight. We live in the midst of a world whose values and dreams and everything else are antithetical to the ways of God, which, we, which means we need to make sure, thirdly, that we realign our priorities. We need to make sure that our priorities are the priorities of God. So we started this morning by saying, who is it that you love? And I acknowledge that that's an easy question to answer in church. I mean, I love God. I mean, if I give you this option, who loves God, who loves the world? I mean, we're all going to raise our hands and say, I love God. It's an easy question to answer. But I'm not so sure the answer we give is always right. So what I want to do in closing is to make a couple of statements that will help us think about what it is or who it is we really do love. These are not statements that are given in order. That is, the first one is not any greater than the fifth one. These are not exclusive. That is, there could be a hundred other questions. I'm just asking these questions. I'm just making these statements to help us try to think about what it is or who it is that we love. Do I really love God? Is he my top priority? Or whether I'd like to admit it or not, is my love for the world greater than my love for God? Statement number one, is praise more important than pleasure? Would you value praise, that is praise of God, over pleasure? That is, we gather on a weekly basis to praise God. That's a large part of what we do in a worship service. Again, whether that's through song or listening to the word, we are doing so for the glory, for the praise of God. But is that more important than our pleasure? Or does pleasure dominate our lifestyle? Of course, you know that pleasure is very important in today's world. People live for pleasure. And we need to be reminded that we are to be professing believers who don't just say we love God, but who demonstrate it by our emphasis on praise corporately as we're doing this morning and personally. And one of the most frustrating things in ministry is to know beyond any doubt that there are countless professing Christians who frankly place little value on the praise of God. And the reason we know that is because you can't find them. They're not gathering with the church because pleasure is more important. They've got a hundred other things to do on Sunday morning rather than come to church. And they usually have a thousand things to do other than personal praise of God. So I'm not just talking about whether you come to church. I'm talking about whether or not you have the time to praise God in private with your Bible study and with your prayer time. Or are you constantly saying to yourself and others, I just don't have time. Because what that says is other things are a greater priority. So is praise something you value over pleasure? Secondly, what about evangelism over entertainment. And this entertainment is similar to pleasure, but you know that entertainment dominates our lifestyle these days. It is what we value in many ways more so than other things. We live for the weekend. I mean, if I can just get through the week, I've got the weekend. If I can get past Wednesday, I'm downhill, Friday's coming, and then I can entertain myself all weekend long only to do it all over again next week. What about our personal evangelism? Do we value evangelism 
more than we value our own entertainment. And I think if we're honest, the vast majority of us would have to answer no. That our personal entertainment is much more valuable to us based on where we spend our time and based on where we spend our money. Our personal entertainment is of much greater value than our personal evangelism is. And that's just being honest. And I'm right there with you. So evangelism over entertainment. The third statement I would make is maturity over money. And what I mean by that is maturity as in growth in the Christian life. Do you value your growth in godliness, your growth in following Christ? Is that more important to you than making money? Now, there's nothing wrong with making money. We all need to make money. We all have bills to pay and families to provide for. So I'm not criticizing the making of money. But if you are always thinking about how much more you can make, how you can do that, how you can save and invest, if your 401k and your retirement and all of those things are constantly on your mind and maturing in your relationship with God is not, then it's simply saying you're thinking like the world. And if you're thinking like the world, then you're probably living like the world. So we need to value maturity over merely making money. Again, I could appeal to the man who has it all but does not have his soul. Fourthly, service over satisfaction. Is satisfaction more important than service? Jesus said, I did not come to be served but to serve. And yet many of us live as if everyone else is supposed to serve me. We live in a service-dominated world nowadays where everybody is supposed to do what I want them to do. And if they don't do it quickly enough or well enough, we get mad because I am paying for this service. And we bring that over into the church, and church becomes everybody else serving me. Are things going the way I want them to go? Are the songs, the songs that I like? Is the sermon the length that I like? Is everything in the church tailored to me so that I walk away satisfied? Or do I think about my service to someone else? And if we're constantly worried about our own satisfaction rather than how we can serve one another in the body of Christ, again, I'm simply saying if that's the case, we're thinking just like the world. And if we're thinking just like the world, we're probably loving just like the world. The last one I can mention, and again, there are plenty of others, but our time is growing short. I would say comfort, or conviction, I should say, over comfort. I almost put cost there. I could, I could put either one, cost or conviction over comfort. That is, is life about my own comfort? Is life about me getting my needs met and being comfortable, whether that means financial or temperature or whatever category you want to put in there, that I'm just concerned with me being comfortable? Or am I willing to stand up for my convictions even if it costs me, even if it costs me that comfort? On Wednesday nights, we're studying the book of Acts, and this coming Wednesday, we are in chapter 7. And so yesterday, I was reading commentaries on Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is the story of Stephen. In chapter 6, he has just been elected, if we want to use that term, as one of the new deacons, even though that word is not in the text. He's been elected as one of the seven men to help serve the tables. Now, there's been some time elapsed between chapter 6 and chapter 7. I don't know how long, but some years have transpired. So, so he becomes a servant in chapter 6 because there's been some widows whose needs have been neglected. And so, so he's helping with that. But in chapter 7, he's, he's not waiting on tables. 
In chapter 7, he's done some signs and wonders, and he's been preaching the gospel, and so he gets arrested. And in chapter 7 is this long sermon, much of which is a history of the Israelites, but ultimately is a defense of the gospel and of his relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, remember that he knows Jesus has just been killed years before for virtually the exact same charges that he's on trial for. He's undermining the law of Moses and the temple. Those are the two charges they brought against Jesus. Stephen could say, you know what, I I can see that my life is heading in a similar fate as Jesus' was, and I don't want to go there. I want comfort. But that's not what he says. He stands firm on his convictions in all likelihood, knowing that that is going to be his death, and that is indeed what happens at the end of chapter 7. He is stoned to death for his convictions, which were more important than his comfort. Now, frankly, most of us, all of us, are never going to be in that circumstance. But we do have daily choices that we make that sort of lean one way or the other here. Is it about, am I concerned about the cost of following Christ because I want comfort? Or am I willing to serve and go and do and give no matter the cost because comfort's not my priority? Again, these are just five statements. We could put 50 more up. But these are just five statements to help us think about. Do I really love the world? Or do I love the Father? Because in answering that, we would all say, yeah, I love the Lord. I mean, give me that choice, and I'm going to pick God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God is our top priority. And here's all I'm asking this morning. I'm asking that question, is God your top priority? And again, before you answer too quickly, I'm asking you to think about these things. And if, having seen these five things and thought of others, you say to yourself, you know what, God's not the priority that he used to be in my life. There was a time when he was top priority, but i got to admit, he's not now. I'm simply asking you to admit that, to confess that to God, and ask God to forgive you of that, which we've already seen he will do. And then to commit yourselves again to changing your priority, to realigning your priorities So that God is indeed, not just in word, but in life, your top priority. Let me pray.